Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night, show number 45. Yes, can I just say a big thank you to all the emails and all the correspondence on the forums about reaching show 100 on the original shows. I mean, granted, we're up around about 160, but it's kind of a bit of a milestone and it was really nice, so thank you so much. And I've had, I'll tell you what, it's been really good as well. All the emails and all the kind of all the messages on the forums, everyone's been mes- mentioning about the, the little ace doubles and the little ace books. Oh, well, I think I might have a couple on the shelf, you know. And everyone's been going checking, so that's great news as well. And I'll tell you what was, this is why I kind of love the forums, because you find out things about people and, you know, you I would never have kind of known. Hasn't Larry Santuru, who's... One of our writers on the show, who's actually going to narrate one of the stories tonight, didn't he meet Donald A. Wolheim and his wife, you know, and he's got like vivid memories and yeah, he's telling us all, if you go on the forums, you can read the post about, you know, this kind of meeting that he had with Donald A. Wolheim. So how cool is that? Well done, Larry. Don't forget as well, you know, if you want to send in, just give you a little heads up now at the beginning of the show so it kind of sinks in. Flash fiction, up to 1,600 words now. We're getting some in now, so that's really nice. Send some flash fiction in. You know, it can cross the boundaries, science fiction, fantasy, horror. Send it over to me at starshipsofa at gmail.com and I will certainly send it on to Grant, the slush monkey. And articles, if you're kind of interested, if you've got something interesting to say or you, you think you have on any kind of article idea that you might have, Drop us an email, same email address, starshipsover at gmail.com, and that will be fine. 
And there's been loads, just one last thing before kind of get into the, the show properly, loads of kind of well wishes, sending fun well wishes to English Assassin. So yes, again, English Assassin, good luck on your trip to Mexico, it might be permanent there. Do keep in touch when you're over there, that would be so nice. So on to Oral Delights number 45, and what a show. I keep saying that every time, don't I? You're probably thinking, well, Tony, it's just a normal fucking show, man. But yes, it is rather good. Two bits of flash fiction. We have flash fiction by Ian Creasy, Reality 2.0. So check that out. And that is narrated by our good friend. Well, actually, when I say narrated, that is arranged by Martin. You'll find out later as well. More flash fiction by Mac Ranells. We have the fantastic Matt Sanborn Smith with his fiction crawl at number two. Delving into the murky world of all them free stories out there to deliver to you the finest. <laughs> he took on a monster of a task there. Thank you very much. And main fiction is none other than Paolo Pachacalupi with an incredible story called Pump Six. So do join me for Oral Delight. What is your. So, instead of the usual route, and we start off with a poetry, we will start off with a little bit of flash fiction. And as I said before, it is by Ian Creasy. He was born in 1969 and lives in Yorkshire, England. Began writing when rock and roll stardom failed to return his calls. So far, he's had 30-odd short stories in various magazines and anthologies. Spare time interests include hiking, gardening, and environmental conservation work. Basically anything to get him away from the computer screen. For a little bit more information about Ian Creasy, check out the interview he did in Shimmer Magazine in January 2006. There will be a link on the show. And as I said before as well, narration or arrangement is put together by Martin, our good friend Martin, MCL Studios. And I think Martin had a little bit too much spare time on his hand when he did this. This is just, I could just picture Martin sitting at his computer desk doing this. Fantastic, Martin, you're a star. So, without further ado, Starship Sofa presents Reality 2.0 by Ian Creasy. Now we have a special report from our science correspondent in Redmond. Putting two and two together became a little easier yesterday when Microsoft launched Wonder Numbers, its long-awaited upgrade to mathematics. The new product will be a key earner for the software giant. Wonder Numbers already has thousands of orders from the business sector as beleaguered corporations search for new ways to make their accounts add up. Gamblers and darts players are also expected to embrace the new mathematics in their search for a win. The product's slogan is, now you can divide by zero. It is now also possible to square the circle, try an angle and prove the gold batch conjecture that each even number is the sum of two primes. There is a new quantity infinity plus one and for convenience the value of pi has been adjusted to exactly 3.14. Controversially, Wonder Numbers does not include i, the square root of minus one. But the square root of minus one just doesn't make any sense said Microsoft spokesperson Rita Williamson. Our programmers couldn't understand it so we got rid of it. Partial differential equations have also been left out. They're too damned hard explained 
Paul Green, vice president in charge of reality upgrades. The key word in this new mathematics is fun. How many school kids give up math because it's too hard, too geeky, too boring? Now, each quadratic equation comes with an exciting animation. And if you collect all the integers, you can send them in to win a prize. Henry Watkins of the American Mathematical Association expressed outrage. Math is supposed to be hard, he insisted. That's why Newton and Einstein are the preeminent geniuses of history. If you want to make maths easy, why not go ahead and put a stairlift on Everest while you're at it? However, many scientists welcome the new mathematics. Maths is the basis of physics, and the new version should speed the development of flying cars and holidays on the moon, said Jenny Waits of NASA. People have been waiting for the future too long. Once the new math is rolled out, we'll start work on cracking the light speed barrier. We want to be at Alpha Centauri by next year. Green said, Microsoft's strength has always been in operating systems and math is the operating system of the universe itself. The licensing revenue is going to be huge. Although protests had been expected from church groups irritated at this intrusion onto God's traditional territory, Microsoft has taken care to keep the religious right on board. Using the Wonder Numbers system, the Evangelical Alliance is expected to release an upgrade to biology which no longer includes evolution or homosexuality. Now we can write evolution out of the textbooks once and for all, said Alliance Liaison Officer Sally Phelps. We're also looking at making wives chemically obedient to their husbands, delaying puberty to the age of 25, and designing children to fall asleep at 8 o'clock, the bedtime God intended. The proposed biology fix has received a guarded welcome from doctors. One of the big problems in medicine is that bacteria keep evolving resistance to antibiotics. It looks like that'll stop happening now, said Dr. Nicholas Wilhelm, of Guy's Hospital in London. Mind you, it's going to be strange not being gay anymore, he added. I guess my cruising will be on the ocean waves in future. Microsoft has its own plans to sell improvements in the traditionally profitable market of sex, but it will not long have the field of reality upgrades to itself. An open source framework has been under development for some time, but Mathematics Squared has been delayed due to problems in keeping the integers all in sequence with so many hackers independently working on the system. At least we're testing it properly, said White Hat 123 of the Steel Cow Brigade. If math is the operating system of the universe, what happens if it crashes, huh? You ask those suits at Microsoft that. Green dismissed accusations that wonder numbers had been insufficiently tested. Why, I'm running it myself, she said. You need it to use Ultrasex 2.0, and let me tell you, that's fantastic. But you should speak to Rita Williamson. She's running the beta release of Ultrasex 2.1, which I hear is even better. Shame I'm not compatible with it. And don't forget, copyright is Ian Creasy. Ian, thank you so much for that. That is really appreciated. We have another short story by Ian coming soon, so do look out for that. Put a link on to Ian's website so you can pop over there and say hello. And Martin, what can I say? <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I'll be sending you a lot more. So we come on to another flash fiction, a little bit longer, flashy art fiction. This one is by Mac Reynolds. And I'll just give you a little heads up on to Mac Reynolds. Dallas McCord Mac Reynolds, November 1917 to January the 30th, 1983. American science fiction writer. His pen names include Clark Collins, Mary Malone, Guy McCord, Dallas Ross and Maxine Reynolds. Many of his short stories were published in that famous Galaxy magazine and Worlds of If magazine. The man in charge would have been Frederick Paul. He was quite popular in the 1960s, but most of his work has subsequently went out of print. Narration today comes from Lawrence Santuru. 
Lawrence, or Larry, as he likes to know, is becoming a great supporter of the Starship Sova, and it's just amazing that the kind of all the hard work and dedication he's putting into this show, and look out for a story next week, which is raw, let's put it that way, but he does a great introduction into it, and it is fantastic. Check out Larry's book, Just North of Nowhere, as well, which is, actually, which contains the story you're going to hear next week. So, Larry, thank you so much for this narration. What a great narrator Larry's turned out to be. So, without further ado, the Starship Sofa presents... I'm a Stranger Here Myself by Mac Reynolds Read by Lawrence Santoro The Place de France is the town's hub. It marks the end of the Boulevard Pasteur, the main drag of the westernized part of the city, and the beginning of the Rue de la Liberté, which leads down to the Grand Soco and the Medina. In a three-minute walk from the Place de France, you can go from an ultra-modern California-like resort to the Baghdad of Harun al-Rashid. Quite a town, Tangier. You can sit of a sunny morning and read the Paris edition of the New York Herald Tribune while getting your shoes done up like mirrors for 30 Moroccan francs, which comes to about five cents at current exchange. You can sit there, after the paper's read, Sip your espresso and watch the people go by. Tangier is probably the most cosmopolitan city in the world. In native costume, you'll see Berber and Reef, Arab and Blue Man, and occasionally a Senegalese from further south. In European dress, you'll see Japs and Chinese, Hindus and Turks, Levantines and Filipinos, North Americans and South Americans, and, of course, even Europeans from both sides of the curtain. In Tangier, you'll find some of the world's poorest and some of the richest. The poorest will try to sell you anything from a shoe shine to their not very lily-white bodies, and the richest will avoid your eyes, afraid you might try to sell them something. But um, in spite of recent changes, the town still has its unique qualities. As a result of them, the permanent population includes smugglers and black marketeers, Fugitives from justice and international conmen, espionage, counter-espionage agents, homosexuals, nymphomaniacs, alcoholics, drug addicts, displaced persons, ex-royalty, and subversives of every flavor. Local law limits the activities of a few of these. Like I said, it's quite a town. I looked up from my copy of the Herald Tribune and said... Uh, Hello, Paul. Anything new cooking? He sank into the chair opposite me and looked around for the waiter. The tables were all crowded, and since mine was a was a face he recognized, he assumed he was welcome to intrude. It was more or less standard procedure at the Café de Paris. It wasn't a place to go if you wanted to be alone. Paul said, How are you, Rupert? Haven't seen you for donkey's years. The waiter came along, and Paul ordered a glass of beer. Paul was easygoing, a sallow-faced little man. I vaguely remembered somebody saying he was from Liverpool and in exports. "'What's in the newspaper?' he said disinterestedly. Um, "'Pogo and Albert are going to fight a duel,' I told him. "'And uh, Lil Abner is becoming a rock and roll singer.' <laughs> he grunted. "'Oh,' I said, "'the intellectual type.' I scanned the front page." Uh, the Ruskies have put up another manned satellite. They have, have they? How big, then? 
uh, several times bigger than anything we Americans have. The beer came. It looked good. So I ordered a glass, too. Paul said, "'Whatever happened to those poxy flying saucers?' "'What flying saucers?' A French girl went by with a poodle, so finely clipped as to look as though it had been shaven. The girl was in the latest from Paris, every pore in place. We both looked after her. "'You know, what everybody was seeing a few years ago. Too bad one of these bloody manned satellites wasn't up then, eh? Maybe they would have seen one, huh?' "'That's an idea,' I said." We didn't say anything else for a while, and I began to wonder if I could go back to my paper without rubbing him the wrong way. I, I didn't know Paul very well, but for that matter, it's comparatively seldom you ever get to know anybody very well in Tangier. Largely, cards are played close to the chest. My beer came, and a plate of tapas for both of us. Tapas at the Café de Paris are apt to be potato salad, a few anchovies, olives— "'possibly some cheese. "'Free lunch, they used to call it in the States. "'Just to say something,' I said. Oh, "'Where do you think they came from?' "'And when he looked blank, I said, "'The flying saucers.' "'He grinned. "'From Mars, Venus, someplace.' "'Hmm,' I said. "'Well, too bad none of them ever crashed "'or landed on the Yale football field "'and said, "'Take me to your cheerleader,' or something.' <laughs> Paul yawned and said, "'Yeah, well, that was always the trouble with those crackpot blokes' explanations of them. Hmm? "'If they were aliens from space, then uh, why not show themselves?' "'I... I ate one of the potato chips. "'It had been cooked in rancid olive oil. "'I said, "'Oh, there are various answers to that one.' We could probably sit around here and think of two or three that made sense, hmm? Paul was mildly interested. Oh, well, like what? Well, hell, suppose, for instance, there's this uh, big galactic league of civilized planets, but it's uh, restricted, you see. <laughs> You're not eligible for membership until you, well, say until you've developed spaceflight. Then you're invited to join the club, huh? Meanwhile, they send secret missions down from time to time to keep an eye on your progress. Paul grinned at me. Yeah, I see you read the same poxy stuff I do, hmm? A Moorish girl went by, dressed in a neatly tailored gray jalaba, European-style high-heeled shoes, and a pinkish silk veil so transparent that you could see she wore lipstick. Very provocative dark eyes can be over a veil. We both looked after her. I said, or here's another one. Suppose you have a very advanced civilization on, say, uh, Mars. Oh, not Mars, no. No air. Too bloody dry to support life. Don't interrupt, please, I said with mock severity. This is a very old civilization. And as the planet began to lose its water and air, it withdrew underground. Uses... Uh, hydroponics and so forth. Husbands, it's water and air. Isn't that what we do in a, in a few million years? If Earth lost its water and air, hmm? Yeah, well, I suppose so, he said. Anyway, what about him? Well, 
They observe how man is going through a scientific boom, an industrial boom, a population boom, a boom, period. (laughs) Any day now, he's going to have practical spaceships. Meanwhile, he's also got the H-bomb. And the way he beats the drums on both sides of the curtain, he's not against using it, if he could get away with it. Paul said, yeah, I got it. So they're scared. They're keeping an eye on us. Well, that's an old one. I've read that a dozen times, dished up different. I shifted my shoulders. Well, it's one possibility. I got a better one, he said. How's this? There's this alien life form that's got way ahead of us. Their civilization is so old. They don't have any records of when it began or how it was in the early days. They've gone beyond things like wars and depressions and revolutions, greed for power, any of those things giving us a bad time here on Earth. They're all like they're scholars, you get it? And some of them are pretty jolly well taken by Earth, especially the way we are right now with all the problems, you get it? Things developing so fast, we don't know where we're going or how we're going to get there. I finished my beer and clapped my hands for Mooley. How do you mean, where we're going? Well, you take half the countries in the world today, they're trying to industrialize, modernize, catch up with the advanced countries. Look at Egypt, Israel, and India and China and Yugoslavia and Brazil, all the rest— They're trying to drag themselves up to the level of the advanced countries, and all using different methods of doing it. But look at the so-called advanced countries, up to their bottoms and problems, juvenile delinquents, climbing crime, suicide rates, the loony bins, full of the balmy, unemployed, threat of war, spending all their money on armaments instead of things like schools, all the bloody mess of it. Why... Why, a man from Mars would be uh, fascinated, like. Mooley came shuffling up in his babouche slippers, and we both ordered another schooner of beer. Paul said seriously, You know, there's only one big snag in this sort of talk. I've sorted the whole thing out before, and you always come up against this brick wall. Where are they? These observers, these scholars or spies, whatever they are, sooner or later we'd nab one of them, you know? Scotland Yard, FBI, Russia's secret police, the French Sûreté, Interpol. This world is so deep in police, counter-espionage outfits, security agents. An alien would slip up in time, no matter how much he'd been trained. Sooner or later he'd slip up. They'd nab him. I shook my head. Not necessarily. The first time I ever considered this possibility, it seemed to me that such an alien would base himself in London, New York, somewhere where he could use the libraries for research, get the daily newspapers, the magazines, be right in the center of things. But now, uh, now I don't think so. I'd think, I'd think he'd be right here in Tangier. Huh? Why, Tangier? Hmm. It's the one town in the world where anything goes. Nobody gives a damn about you or your affairs. For instance, I've known you for a year or more now, and I haven't the slightest idea of how you make your living. Well, that's right, Paul admitted. And this town you seldom even ask a man where he's from, hmm? 
They, he, he can be British, white Russian, a Basque, or a Sikh. Nobody could care less. Where are you from, Rupert? Uh, California, I told him. <laughs> no, you're not, he grinned. I was taken aback. What do you mean? I felt your mind probe back a few minutes ago when I was talking about Scotland Yard or the FBI possibly flushing an alien. Hmm? Telepathy is a sense not trained by the humanoids. If they had it, your job and mine would be considerably more difficult. Let's face it. In spite of these human bodies we're disguised in, neither of us is humanoid. Where are you really from, Rupert? Aldebaran, I said. How about you? <laughs> Dinab, he said, shaking. <laughs> we had a laugh and ordered another beer. What are you doing here on Earth, I asked him. Researching for one of our meat trusts. Uh, we're protein eaters. Humanoid flesh is considered quite a delicacy. Well, how about you? I'm scouting the place for thrill tourists. My job is to go around to these backward cultures, uh, help stir up intertribal or international conflicts, all according to how advanced they are. Then our tourists come in, well shielded, of course, and they get their kicks watching it. <laughs> Paul frowned. Mm. <sighs> that sort of practice could spoil an awful lot of good meat. And there you go. Thank you, Larry. What a great narration. Again, pop over to Larry's site. I will put links on the show, or actually on the website. That might help. Copyright, I would say copyright is Mac Reynolds, but actually copyright is out there open to everyone. So there you go. Hands on, grab it while you can. So our fact article today is Fiction Crawler by Matt Sanborn-Smith. Matt, as you know, digs deep into the metaverse and pulls out them gems of stories. So Matt, in your hands, sir. Can you taste it in the air? That's the taste of the fiction crawler, my friends. Let me tell you, this was a tough month. I slogged through a lot of bad stories, that's for sure. But I do this so you don't have to. I am your Indiana Jones, folks, disappearing into the jungle of the internet and dealing with the dangers and horrors of online fiction, only to emerge with precious golden artifacts just for you. I'll admit I cheated. I hoped to stick with the science fiction as much as I could, but two of these stories are fanciful, and one is an out-and-out -out western, but they are good stories all, so I don't feel like I'm being a total sellout. How can you possibly walk past a story called Old Tingo's Penis and not look inside? You can't, that's how. Or at least I can't. Perhaps you're made of stronger stuff. I'm a middle-aged 12-year-old. You show me a story that's both speculative fiction and about ding-dings, and I am there. Old Tingo's Penis is a Jeffrey Landis story you can find over at revolutionsf.com. It's told as ancient myth, a tale of men and their toys and the women who love to psych out those men. Size does matter, as Amania, the female character in the story, points out again and again. But there's a point where things get crazy. I'll let you go there. While you're at revolutionsf.com, take a look at Prince of Chrysler Coke by Neil Barrett Jr. 
Right now in America, the poor and middle classes are scrambling to raise money to help the down-on-their-luck banking executives. And if that's not science fictional enough for you, Prince of Chrysler Coke explores the far future of big business and the even larger chasm between the classes. I actually read a story by Neil Barrett Jr. a few months ago that I despised. I couldn't imagine anything good ever coming out of that guy after that. Then just last month, I gave him a second chance and read another story by him that I like. So what do I do when faced with the love him or hate him choice? I seek out more of his stuff, which I did. And here it is. Prince is set in a future where CEOs have literally become royalty and hire people to do nearly everything but walk for them. The story takes place at the wedding of the prince, wherein the great houses of Chrysler Coke and Pepsicoma Dodge will be joined, much to the consternation of Ducky Dupontiac Hines. It goes on and on like this. You might want to read it twice to let your brain marinate in it, but it's well worth a second read. It's a wild story of a corporate coup d'etat. It's mostly detached participants and the prince's struggle to remove his own jacket. As for the western I told you about, this one could be considered fantasy. It's The Scalp Hunter by one of my favorites, Robert E. Howard. This one's on audio, and you'll find it on LibriVox. But if you head over to SFF Audio under Robert E. Howard on the author pages, you'll find that and a lot more. Howard, creator of Conan and King Cull, had to spread his imagination wide in order to survive as a full-time writer during the Depression. Besides creating the subgenre of sword and sorcery, Howard wrote detective stories, modern adventure, boxing stories, and outlandish westerns that bordered on tall tales. The Scalp Hunter features his hillbilly hero Breckenridge Elkins, who, like all of Howard's protagonists, is about the size of a pair of oxen. Unlike many of his protagonists, Elkins is dumber than the yoke that binds those oxen. I've listened to about half of the Breckenridge Elkins stories, and they are ridiculously formulaic. The plots depend on our hero's incredible stupidity, and the reader cringes at the obvious path he or she is being led down. So why am I recommending this? I think any one of these stories taken by itself is a good time, filled with brawling and humor and wonderful old-timey dialects, and the scalp hunter stands above the rest. Elkins finds himself in Grizzly Claw, a town of con artists who make up the law as they go to reap hefty fines. When a local mule kicks Elkins in the head, his head is fine, but the mule's leg is broken. The mule's owner complains to the sheriff, "'He kicked himself in the head with my mule!' and glorious mayhem ensues. Ever hit a guy with another guy? Breckenridge Elkins has. One more fantasy now, as I'm saving two science fiction stories, the best of the month, for last. I found Antiques and Frets by Susanna Clark of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell fame in the oddest of places, the New York Times op-ed pages. Once again, reality puts fiction to shame. I apologize for this part. When I first discovered the story, I was able to read it, no strings attached. Now that I go back to check the link, I see that I have to register with the New York Times website in order to get into it. Registration is free, but I can understand why a reader might be reluctant to sign up. Antiques and Freds tells the well-known story of the imprisonment of Mary, Queen of Scots, and mixes in a fantastic element so well that history doesn't feel radically altered to my knowledge anyway. Another interesting layer is simply added to the already fascinating story. What we know of some of the ups and downs of the ladies involved is in this story tied to the deeply satanic art of embroidery. During her incarceration, the Stuart Queen hooks up with a mild-mannered widow-maker whose needlework skill can topple the mighty. Mary tries her hand at the art, crafting malicious gifts for her royal cousin with varying degrees of success. 
We all know how the story has to end, but how it gets there blows the dust off the old histories. If you're one of those people who don't mind it when real people get killed, but throw fits when fictional animals get killed, you might want to skip the last two stories I mentioned here. Animals do suffer. Bear in mind, however, that if you pass on these, you will be skipping the two best stories I read online last month. I read The People of Sand and Slag by Paolo Bacigalupi when it first appeared in fantasy and science fiction a few years back, and it satisfied my science fiction hunger while punching me in the gut, like so many stories by Bacigalupi do. He's my favorite author of the newer set, filling his stories with great detail and human misery. If I could still find his brilliant story, Yellow Card Man, online, I'd recommend that one as well. You can find this one at the author's website, windupstories.com. The People of Sand and Slag is still a sad and powerful read the second time around. It tells of three mercenary security guards on a future devastated Earth. Don't worry about humanity, they've got Weevil Tech, a super technology of the nano-sounding kind that lets human beings survive damn near anything. Instead, worry about every other living thing, because Weevil Tech humans no longer have a need for that pesky ecosphere. They cut off their own limbs for fun and eat sand and toxic waste that's in abundance. In a Montana mining wasteland, they discover a dog, the only one they've ever seen outside of a zoo. It has somehow survived in the wild, and they take it in for a time with almost no concept of how fragile an unaltered biological being can be. The environment, the attitudes, the pain, and the indifference compile to form a disturbing maybe of the loss of our humanity. But if you prefer your disturbing maybes to be funny as well as horrific, get yourself over to Strange Horizons and read The Featherless Chicken by Patrick Scott Vickers. More than once while reading this story, my mind stopped me cold to exclaim, Dude, that is messed up. Sick and twisted and funny, it's all the joys of genetic engineering with the hassles of ethics completely removed. It tells of the many experiments that a small company performs in trying to achieve a featherless chicken. Think of the money that could be saved not having to remove those feathers before processing. This is just a sideline, of course. The company's founder, Mr. Nico, created the business to fulfill his dream of creating a transparent cow. I don't know how that would save anyone any money, but hey, you know, follow your bliss. Mr. Nico has always wanted to watch the digestion and transformation of grass to manure as it works its way through the cow. I suppose there's some educational merit in that. You can imagine the house of horrors they inadvertently create as things go wrong. The story opens with a chicken that's inside out, and that one was Experiment 36. It all comes to a head during a classroom demonstration for elementary students and the unforeseen fiddlings of an employee bent on shaking things up. This story is why I go out there, folks. It's one of those that smacks you in the head a few times with freshness and fun. Track it down and eat it up. Time to close another one, I'm afraid. I have to jump back into the web and do battle with the giant spider queen of speculative fiction so I can bring you treasures in abundance next month. There's no way I can score the appropriate outro music, but if I sing it and sing it poorly, there's no way they could sue, right? Okay, I'm singing this part softer like it's a proper fade out. Bye, everyone. Matt, you are a star. Thank you very much. That is a task among tasks. Excellent. Thank you so much. Where's the next one? Get it to my desk quick as pronto. So we come on to the main fiction. By none other than one of the hottest writing stars out there at the moment. Paolo Bajaklupi. 
Just to give you a heads up, he is Theo Sturgeon Award winner and science fiction and fantasy writer from Colorado. His fiction has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov Science Fiction and the environmental journal High Country News. His non-fiction essays have appeared in Salon.com and High Country News. He was a webmaster for High Country News starting in 2003. He is currently working on a novel from his home in the state of Colorado where he lives with his wife and his son. His short fiction has recently been collected in Pump 6 and other stories by Nightshade Books. I'll put a link onto Pablo's site and Nightshade Books as well so you can go out and check that. That collection of short stories is getting some great reviews out there so I'm really quite proud that Paolo has let us have Pump 6. You know, it's a stunning story so there you go. Narration today is by Mr Grant Stone. Grant, how are you doing sir? Grant's right in the middle of nappy changes and everything like that. And he's had a bit of bad luck over this last few weeks. So I don't want to go kind of into it. But Grant, honestly, my heart and feelings are going out to you there, sir, now. So please get yourself back on your feet. And the sofa needs you. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents... Pump Six by Paolo Bacigalupi Pump Six is broken. Broken how? Chi shrugged. Oh. It stopped. Is it making a noise? Is it stopped all the way? Is it going slowly? Is it flooding? Come on, help me out. Chi looked at me blankly. Even his head picking stopped for a second. You try looking at the troubleshooting indexes? I asked. She shrugged. Didn't think of it. How many times have I told you that's the first thing you do? How long has it been out? Since midnight? He screwed up his face, thinking. No, since ten. You switched the flows over? He hit his forehead with the palm of his hand. Forgot. I started to run. The entire Upper West Side doesn't have sewage processing since last night? Why didn't you call me? Chi jogged after me, dogging my heels as we ran through the plant's labyrinth to the control rooms. You were off duty. So you just let it sit there. It's hard to shrug while you're running full out, but Chi managed it. Stuff's broken all the time. I didn't figure it was that bad. You know, there was that bulb out in Tunnel 3, and then there was that leak from the toilets. And then the drinking fountain went out again. You always let things slide. I figured I'd let you sleep. I didn't bother trying to explain the difference. If it happens again, just remember, if the pumps, any of them die, you call me. It doesn't matter where I am, I won't be mad, you just call me. If we let these pumps go down, there's no telling how many people could get sick. There's bad stuff in that water, and we've got to stay on top of it. Otherwise it bubbles up into the sewers, and then it gets out in the air, and people get sick. You got it? I shoved open the doors to the control room, and stopped. The floor was covered with toilet paper. Rolls of it, all unstrung and dangled around the control room, like some kind of mummy striptease had gone wrong. There must have been a hundred rolls unravelled all over the floor. What the hell is this? This? He looked around, scratching his head. The paper, Chi? Oh, right, we had a toilet paper fight last night. For some reason, they triple delivered. We didn't have enough space in the storage closet. I mean, we haven't had ass wipes for two months, and then we had piles and piles of it. So you had a toilet paper fight while pump six was down. 
Something in my voice must have finally gotten through. He cringed. Hey, don't look at me that way. I'll, I'll get it picked up. No worries. Jeez, you're worse than Mercady in any way. It wasn't my fault. I was just getting ready to reload the dispensers, and then Susan Zoon came down, and we all got in this fight. He shrugged. It was just something to do, that's all. And Sue started it anyway. I gave him another dirty look, and kicked my way through the tangle of TP to the control consoles. Chi called after me. Hey, how am I going to wind it back up if you kick it around? I started throwing switches on the console, running diagnostics. I tried booting up the troubleshooting database, but got a connection error. Big surprise. I looked on the shelves for the hard copies of the operation and maintenance manuals, but they were missing. I looked at Chi. Do you know where the manuals are? The what? I pointed at the empty shelves. Oh, they're in the bathroom. I looked at him. He looked back at me. I couldn't make myself ask. I just turned back to the consoles. Go get them. I need to figure out what these flashes mean. There was a whole panel of them winking away at me. All for pump six. Chi scuttled out of the room, dragging TP behind him. Overhead, I heard the observation room door open. Sue's coming down the stairs. More trouble. She rustled through the TP streamers and came up close behind me, crowding. I could feel her breathing on my neck. The pump's been down for almost twelve hours, she said. I could write you up. She thumped me in the back, hard. I could write you up, buddy. She did it again, harder. Bam. I thought about hitting her back, but I wasn't going to give her another excuse to dock pay. Besides, she's bigger than me. And she's got more muscles than an orangutan. About as hairy, too. Instead, I said, it would have helped if someone had called. You talking to me? She gave another shove and leaned around to get in my face, looking at me all squinty-eyed. Twelve hours downtime, she said again. That's grounds for a write-up. It's in the manual. I can do it. No kidding. You read that. All by yourself? You're not the only one who can read, Alvarez. She turned and stomped back up the stairs to her office. Chi came back, lugging the maintenance manuals. I don't know how you do this, he puffed as he handed them over. These manuals make no sense at all. It's a talent. I took the plasterine volumes and glanced up at Sousa's office. She was just standing there, looking down at me through the observation glass, looking like she was going to come down and beat my head in. A dimwit promo who got lucky when the old boss went into retirement. She has no idea what a boss does, so mostly she spends her time scowling at us, filling out paperwork that she can't remember how to route and molesting her secretary. Employment guarantees are great for people like me, but I can see why you might want to fire someone. The only way Suze was ever going to leave was if she fell down the observation room stairs and broke her neck. She scowled harder at me, trying to make me look away. I let her win. She'd either write me up or she wouldn't, and even if she did, she might still get distracted and forget to file it. At any rate, she couldn't fire me. We were stuck together, like a couple of cats tied in a sack. I started thumbing through the manual's plastic pages, going back and forth through the indexes as I cross-referenced all the flashes. I looked up again at the console. There were a lot of them, maybe more than I'd ever seen. Chi squatted down beside me, watching. He started picking his head again. I think it's a comfort thing for him, but it makes your skin crawl until you get used to it. Makes you think of lice. You do that fast, he said. How come you didn't go to college? You kidding? No way, man. You're the smartest guy I ever met. You totally could have gone to college. I glanced over at him, trying to tell if he was screwing with me. 
He looked back at me completely sincere like a dog waiting for a treat. I went back to the manual. No ambition, I guess. The truth was, I never made it through high school. I dropped out of PS 105 and never looked back. Or forward, I guess. I remember standing up in freshman algebra and watching the teacher's lips flap and not understanding a word he was saying. I turned in worksheets and got D's every time, even after I redid them. None of the other kids were complaining, though. They just laughed at me when I kept asking him to explain the difference between squaring and doubling variables. You don't have to be Einstein to figure out where you don't belong. I started piecing my way through the troubleshooting diagrams. No clogs indicated. Go to Mechanics Diagnostics Volume 3. I picked up the next binder of pages and started flipping. Anyway, you've got a bad frame of reference. We aren't exactly a bunch of Nobel Prize winners here. I glanced up at Suze's office. Smart people don't work in dumps like this. Suze was scowling down at me again. I gave her the universal salute. You see? She shrugged. I don't know. I tried reading that manual about 20 times on the john and it still doesn't make any sense to me. If you weren't around, half the city would be swimming in shit right now. Another flasher winked on the console. Amber, amber, red. It stayed red. In a couple of minutes, they're going to be swimming in a lot worse than that. Believe me, buddy, there's lots worse things than shit. McCady showed me a list once, before he retired. All the things that run through here that the pumps are supposed to clean. Polychlorinated biphenyls, bisphenyl A, estrogen, phalates, PCBs, heptachlor. I got a super clean sticker for all that stuff. He lifted his shirt and showed me the one he had stuck to his skin right below his ribcage. A yellow smiley face sticker. A little like the one I used to get from my grandpa when he was feeling generous. It said super clean on the smiley's forehead. You buy those? Sure. Seven bucks for seven. I get them every week. I can drink the water straight now. I'd even drink out of the Hudson. He started scratching his skull again. I watched him scratch for a second, remembering how zit girl Nora had tried to sell some to Maria before they went swimming. Well, I'm glad it's working for you. I turned and started keying restart sequences for the pumps. Now let's see if we can get this sucker started up and keep all the neighbours who don't buy stickers from having a pack of trogs. Get ready to pull a reboot, on my say-so. Chi went over to clear the data lines and put his hands on the restart levers. I don't know what difference it makes. I went through the park the other day and you know what I saw? A mama trog and five little baby trogs. What good does it do to keep trogs from getting born to good folks when you just get those ones down the park making whole litters? I looked over at Chi to say something back, but he kind of had a point. The reboot sequences completed, and pump sixes indicators showed primed. Three. Two. One. Primed full, I said. Go, go, go. Chi threw his levers and the consoles cleared green, and somewhere deep down below us, sewage started pumping again. We climbed the skin of the Kusevik Center, climbing for heaven, climbing for Wiki. Maggie and Nora and Wu and me... Worming our way up through stairwell turns, scrambling over rubble, kicking past condom wrappers and scattering effie packets like autumn leaves. Wiki's synthesized xylophones and Japanese kettle drums thrummed, urging us higher. Trogs and sad sack partiers who didn't have my connections watched jealously as we climbed, watched and whispered as we passed them by, all of them knowing that Max owed me favours and favours and favours, and then I went to the front of the line because I kept the toilets running on time. The club was perched at the very top of the Kusevik a bunch of old stockbroker offices. Max had torn down the glass cubicles and the old digital wall screens that used to track the MYSE and had really opened the space up. Unfortunately, the club wasn't much good in the winter anymore because we'd all gotten rowdy one night and shoved out the windows. 
But even if it was too damn breezy half the year, watching those windows falling had been a major high point at the club. A couple of years later, people were still talking about it, and I could still remember the slow way they came out of their frames and tumbled and sailed through the air. And when they hit bottom, they splashed across the streets like giant buckets of water. At any rate, the open-air thing worked really good in the summer, with all the rolling brownouts that were always knocking out the AC. I got a shot of Effie as we went in the door, and the club rode in on a wave of primal flesh, a tribal gathering of sweaty jumping monkeys in half-torn business suits, all of us going crazy and eyeball-wide until our faces were as pale and big as fish wallowing in the bottom of the ocean. Maggie was smiling at me as we danced, and our whole oven fight was completely behind us. I was glad about that, because after our fork in the outlet fight, she acted like it was my fault for a week, even after she said she forgave me. But now, in the dance throb of Wiki, I was her white knight again, and I was glad to be with her, even if it meant dragging Nora along. All the way up the stairs, I tried not to stare at Zora's zit-popped skin, or make fun of her swollen-up face, but she knew what I was thinking, because she kept giving me dirty looks whenever I warned her to step around places where the stairway was crumbling. Talk about stupid, though. She's about as sharp as a marble. I won't drink or swim in any of the water around here. It comes from working with sewage all the time. You know way too much about everything that goes in and out of the system. People like Nora put a Kali Mary pendant between their tits or stick a super clean smiley to their ass cheek and hope for the best. I drink bottled water and only shower with a filter head, and sometimes I still get creeped out. No pus rashes, though. The kettle drums throbbed inside my eyeballs. Across the club, Nora was dancing with Wu, and now that my Effie was kicking into overdrive, I could see her positive qualities. She danced fast and furious. Her hair was long and black, her zits were the size of breasts. They looked succulent. I sidled up to her and tried to apologize for not appreciating her before, but between the noise and my slobbering... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. On her skin, I guess I failed to communicate effectively. She ran away before I could make it up to her, and I ended up bouncing alone in Wiki's kettle drum womb, while the crowds rode in and out around me and the Effie built up in ocean throbs that ran from my eyeballs to my crotch and back again, bouncing me higher and higher and higher. 
A girl in torn knee socks and a nun's habit was mewling in the bathroom when Maggie found us and pulled us apart and took me on the floor with people walking around us and trying to use the stainless steel pistroffs, but then Max grabbed me and I couldn't tell if we'd just been doing it on the bar and if that was the problem or if I was just taking a leak in the wrong place, but Max kept complaining about bubbles in his gin and a riot, a riot, a riot that he was going to have on his hands if those effy freaks didn't get their liquor and he shoved me down under the bar where the tubes were coming out of vats of gin and tonic and it was like floating away inside the guts of an octopus with the waves of the kettle drums booming away inside me. I wanted to sleep down there, maybe hunt for the nun's red panties, except that Max kept coming back to me with more effy and saying we had to find the problem, the bubbly problem, the bubbly problem. Take some of this, it will clear your damn head. Find where the bubbles come from, where they fill the gin. No, 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 the tonic, the tonic. No bubbles in the tonic. Find the tonic, stop the riot, and make it all okay before the gag gas trucks come and shut us down, and damn it, what are you sniffing down under there? Swimming under the bar, swimming long and low, eyeballs wide, prehistoric fishy amongst giant mossy root-laced eggs buried under the mist of the swamp down with the bar rags and the lost spoons and the sticky slime of bar sugar and these huge dead silver eggs lying under the roots growing moss and mildew but nothing else no yoky tonic coming out of these suckers been sucked dry sucked full dry by too many thirsty dinosaurs and of course that's the problem no tonic none none at all more eggs, more eggs, we need more eggs, more big silver tonic dispensing eggs need to rumble in on hand trucks and roll in on white jacketed bow tie bartender backs. More eggs need to take the prod from the long root green sucking tubes and then we can suck the tonic out of their yolk out and Max can keep on making G&Ts and I'm a hero, hey, 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 a hero, a goddamn superstar because I know a lot about silver eggs and how to stick in the right tubes. And isn't that why Maggie's always pissed at me? Because my tube is never ready to stick into her eggs. Or maybe she's got no eggs to stick and sure as hell aren't going to get to the doctor to find she's got no eggs and no replacements either. Not a single one coming in on a hand truck. And isn't that why she's out in the crowd bouncing in a black corset with a guy licking her feet and giving me the finger? And isn't that why we're going to have a riot now when I beat that trogwad's head in with this chunk of bar that I'm going to get Max to loan me? Except I'm too far underwater to beat up bootlicker. And little smoking piles of effie keep blooming up on the floor. And we're all lapping them up because I'm a goddamn hero, a hero, a hero. The fix-it man of all fix-it men and everyone bows and scrapes and passes me effie because there isn't going to be a riot and we won't get shut down with gag gas and we won't do the vomit crawl down the stairwells to the streets and then Max shoves me back on the dance floor with more shots of effie for Maggie, a big old tray of forgiveness and forgiveness comes easy when we're all walking on the ceiling of the biggest, oldest skyscraper in the sky. Blue kettle drums and eyeball nuns. Zits and dinner dates down the stairs and into the streets. By the time we stumbled out of Wiki, I was finally coming out of all the effie folds. But Maggie was still flying, running her hands all over me, touching me, telling what she was going to do to me when she got home. Nora and Wu were supposed to be with us, but somehow we'd gotten separated. Maggie wasn't interested in waiting around, so we headed uptown, stumbling between the big old city towers, winding around sidewalk stinkads for Diablo and Possession, and dodging fish dog stands with afterbar octopi on a stick. The night was finally cool, in the sweet spot between end of midnight swelter and beginning of morning smother. There was a blanket of humidity wet on us and seductive after the club. Without rain or freezes, I barely had to watch for concrete rain at all. Maggie ran her hands up and down my arm as we walked, occasionally leaning in close to kiss my cheek and nibble on my ear. Max says you're amazing. You saved the day. I shrugged. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal. The whole bar thing was pretty hazy bubbled out by all the effie I'd done. My skin was still singing from it. Mostly what I had was a warm glow right in my crotch and a stuttery view of the dark streets and the long rows of candles in the windows of the towers. But Maggie's hand felt good, and she looked good, and I had some plans of my own for when we got back to the apartment so I knew I was coming down nice and slow, 
like falling into a warm feather bed full of helium and tongues. Anyone could have figured out the tonic was empty if we hadn't all been so damn high. I stopped in front of a bank of auto vendors. Three of them were sold out. One was broken open, but there were still a couple drinks in the last one. I dropped my money in and chose a bottle of blue vitality for her and a sweatshine for me. It was a pleasant surprise when the machine kicked out the bottles. Wow, Maggie beamed at me. I grinned and fished out her bottle. Lucky night, I guess. First the bar, now this. I don't think the bar thing was luck. I wouldn't have thought of it. She downed her blue vitality in two long swallows and giggled. And you did it when your eyes were as big as a fish. You were doing handstands on the bar. I didn't remember that. Bar sugar and red lace bras I remembered, but not handstands. I don't see how Max keeps that place going when he can't even remember to restock. Maggie rubbed up against me. Wiki's a lot better than most clubs, and anyway, that's why he's got you. A real-life hero. She giggled again. I'm glad we didn't have to fight our way out of another riot. I hate that. In an alley, some trogs were making it. Clustered bodies, hermaphroditic, climbing on each other and humping their mouths open, smiling and panting. I glanced at them and kept going, but Maggie grabbed my arm and tugged me back. The trogs were really going at it now, all in a flounder. Three of them piled, their skins gleaming with sweat, slick and saliva. They looked back at us with yellow eyes and not a bit of shame. They just smiled and got into a heavy, groaning rhythm. I can't believe how much they do it, Maggie whispered. She gripped my arm, pressing against me. They're like dogs. That's about how smart they are. They changed positions, one crouching as though Maggie's words had inspired them. The others piled on top of him, or her. Maggie's hand slid to the front of my pants, fumbled with the zipper and reached inside. They're so... Oh, God! She pulled me close and started working on my belt, almost tearing at it. What the hell? I tried to push her off, but she was all over me, her hands reaching inside my pants, touching me, making me hard. The Effie was still working, too. That was for sure. Let's do it, too. Here, I want you. Are you crazy? They don't care. Come on, maybe this time it'll take. Knock me up. She touched me, her eyes widening at my sudden size. You're never like this. She touched me again. Oh, God, please. She pressed herself against me, looking over at the trogs. Like that, just like that. She pulled off her shimmer silk blouse, exposing her black corset and the pale skin of her breasts. I stared at her skin and curves. That beautiful body she'd teased me with all night long. Suddenly I didn't care about the trogs or the few people walking by on the street. We both yanked at my belt. My pants fell down around my ankles. We slammed up against in the alley wall, pressing against old concrete and staring into each other's eyes. And then she pulled me into her, and her lips were on my ear, biting and panting and whispering as we moved against each other. The trogs just grinned and grinned and watched us with their big yellow eyes as we all shared the alley and all watched each other. At five in the morning, Chi called again, his voice coming straight into my head through my earbug. In all the excitement, and Effie, I'd forgotten to take it out. Pump six was down again. You said I was supposed to call you, he whined. I groaned and dragged myself out of bed. Yeah, yeah, I did. Don't worry about it. You did good. I'll be there. Maggie rolled over. Where are you going? I pulled on my pants and gave her a quick kiss. Gotta go save the world. They work you too hard. I don't think you should go. And let Chi sort it out? 
You've got to be kidding. We'd be up to our necks in sludge by dinner time. My hero. She smiled sleepily. See if you can find me some doughnuts when you come back. I feel pregnant. She looked so happy and warm and fuzzy I almost climbed back into bed with her. But I fought off the urge and just gave her another kiss. Will do. Outside, light was just starting to break in the sky, a slow yellowing of the smog. The streets were almost silent at the early hour. It was hard not to be bitter about being up at this ungodly hungover time, but it was better than having to deal with the sewage backup if Chi hadn't called. I headed downtown and brought a bagel from a girly-faced guy who didn't know how to make change. The bagel was wrapped in some kind of plastic film that dissolved when I put it in my mouth. It wasn't bad, but it ticked me off that Bagel Boy got confused with the change and needed me to go into his cash pouch and count out my own money. It seems like I'm always bailing everyone out, even dumb Bagel guys. Maggie says I'm as compulsive as Chi. She would have just stood there and waited until Bagel Boy sorted it out, even if it took all day. But I have a damn hard time watching some trogwad drop dollars all over the sidewalk. Sometimes it's just easier to climb out of the oatmeal and do things yourself. Chi was waiting for me when I got in, practically bouncing up and down. Five pumps down now. It started with just one when I called you, but now there's five. They keep shutting off. I went into the control room. The troubleshooting database was still down, so I grabbed the hard copy manuals again. Weird how all the pumps were going offline like that. The control room, normally alive with the hum of the machines, was quieter with half of them down. Around the city, sewage lines were backing up as we failed to cycle waste into the treatment facilities and pump the treated water out into the river. I thought about Nora, with her rash thanks to swimming in that gunk. It could really make you nervous. Looks clean, makes you rash. And we're at the bottom of the river. It's not just our crap in it, everyone upstream too. Our treatment plants pump water from underground or pipe it in and treat it from lakes upstate. At least that's the theory. I don't really buy it. I've seen the amount of water we move through here, and there's no way it's all coming from the lakes. In reality, we've got 20 million-odd people all sucking water that we don't know where it's coming from or what's in it. Like I said, I drink bottled water even if I have to hike all over the city to find it. Or soda water. Or tonic, even. I closed my eyes, trying to piece the evening back together. All those empty canisters of tonic under the bar... Travis Alvarez saves the world while flying to the moon on Effie in two rounds of sex yesterday. Hell yeah. Chi and I brought the pressure dines up, one by one. All of them came back online except pump six. It was stubborn. We reprimed it. Fired. Reprimed. Nothing. Suze came down to backseat drive, dragging Zu, her secretary, behind her. Suze was completely strung out. Her blouse was half tucked in and she had big old fishy effy eyes that were almost as red as the flashes on the console. But her fishy eyes narrowed when she saw all the flashes. How come all the pumps went down? It's your job to keep them working. I just looked at her. Zoned out of her mind at 6am, romping around with her secretary girlfriend while she tried to crack the whip on the rest of us. Now that's leadership. Suddenly I thought maybe I needed to get a different job or needed to start licking big piles of Effie before I came to work. Anything to take the edge off Sue's. If you want me to fix it, I'll need you to clear out, so I can concentrate. Sue's looked at me like she was chewing on a lemon. You better get it fixed. She poked my chest with a thick finger. If you don't, I'm making Chi your boss. She glanced at Zoo. It's your turn on the couch. Come on. 
they trooped off. Chi watched them go. He started picking at his head. They never do any work, he said. Another flasher went amber on the console. I flipped through the manual hunting for a reason. Who does? A job like this where nobody gets fired? Yeah, but there ought to be a way to get rid of her at least. She moved all her home furniture into the office the other day. She never goes home now. Says she likes the AC here. You shouldn't complain. You're the guy who was throwing TP around yesterday. He looked at me, puzzled. So? Never mind. Don't worry about Sue's. We're the bottom of the pile, Chi. Get used to it. Let's try the reboot again. It didn't work. I went back to the manual. Sludge was probably coming up a hundred thousand toilets in the city by now. Weird how all the pumps shut down like that. One, two, three, four. I closed my eyes, thinking. Something about my Effie spree kept tickling the back of my head. Effie flashbacks, for sure, but they kept coming. Big old eggs, big old silver eggs, all of them sucked dry by egg-slurping dinosaurs. Wow. That was some kind of weird spree. Nuns and stainless steel eggs. The urinals and Maggie. I blinked. Everything clicked. Pieces of the puzzle coming together. Cosmic Effie convergence. Emptied silver eggs. Max forgetting to restock his bar. I looked up at Chi, and then down at the manuals, and then back up at Chi. How long have we been running these pumps? What do you mean? When did they get installed? Chi stared at the ceiling, picked his head thoughtfully. How if I know? Before I came on, that's for sure. Me too. I've been here nine years. Have we got a computer that would tell us that? A receipt? Something? I flipped to the front of the manual in my hands. Pressurdyne. High-capacity, self-purging, multi-platform pumping engine. Model 13-44474-888. I frowned. This manual was printed in 2020. Chi whistled and leaned over to finger the plasticized pages. That's pretty damn old. Built to last, right? People built things to last back then. More than a hundred years? He shrugged. I had a car like that once. Real solid. Engine hardly had any rust at all. And had both headlights. But too damn old. He picked something out of his scalp and examined it for a second before flicking it onto the floor. No one works on cars anymore. I can't remember the last time I saw a taxi running... I looked at him, trying to decide if I wanted to say anything about flicking scalp on the floor, and then just gave it up. I flipped through the manual some more until I found the part I wanted. Individual reporting modules, remote access, connectivity features, and data collection. Following the manual's instructions, I opened a new set of diagnostic windows that bypassed the Pressurdyne's generalized reports for pump station managers, and instead connected directly with the pump's raw log data. What I got was... Host source data not found. Big surprise. The rest of the error text advised me to check the remote reporting module extension connectors, whatever those were. I closed the manual and tucked it under my arm. Come on, I think I know what's wrong. I led Chi out of the control room and down into the bowels of the tunnels and plant system. The elevator was busted, so we had to take the access stairs. As we went deeper and deeper, darkness closed in. Grit and dust were everywhere, 
Rats skittered away from us. Isolated LEDs kept the stairwell visible, but barely. Dust and shadows and moving rats were all you could see in the dim amber. Eventually, even the LEDs gave out. Chi found an emergency lantern in a wall socket, blanketed with grey, fluffy dust, but it still had a charge. My asthma started to tickle and close in. Sitting on my chest from all the crud in the air, I took a hit off my inhaler, and we kept going down. Finally, we hit bottom. Light from Chi's lantern wavered and disappeared in the cavern's darkness. The metal of the pressure dines glinted dimly. Chi sneezed. The motion sent his lantern rocking. Shadows shifted crazily until he used a hand to stop it. You can't see shit down here, he muttered. Shut up. I'm thinking. I've never been down here. I came down. Once. When I first came on. When McKady was still alive. No wonder you act like him. He trained you? Sure. I hunted around for the emergency lighting. Mercady had shown the switches to me when he brought me down nearly a decade before and told me about the pumps. He'd been old then, but still working, and I liked the guy. He had a way of paying attention to things, focused. Not like most people who can barely say hello to you before they start looking at their watch or planning their party schedule or complaining about their skin rashes. He used to say my teachers didn't know shit about algebra and that I should have stayed in school. Even knowing that he was just comparing me to Sue's, I thought it was a pretty nice thing for him to say. No one knew the pump systems as well as he did, so even after he got sick and I took over his job, I'd sneak out to the hospital to ask him questions. He was my secret weapon, until the cancer finally took out his guts. I found the emergency lighting and pulled the switches. Fluorescent lights flickered and came alive, buzzing. Some bulbs didn't come on, but they were enough. Chi gasped. They're huge! A cathedral of engineering. Overhead, pipes arched through cavern dimness, shimmering under the muted lights of the fluorescence. An interconnecting web of iron and shadows that centred in complex rosettes around the ranked loom of the pumps. They towered over us, gleaming dully, three stories tall, steel dinosaurs. Dust mantled them. Rust blossoms patterned their hides in complex overlays that made them look like they'd been draped in oriental rugs. Pentagonal bolts as big as my hands studded their armour plating and stitched together the vast sectioned pipes that spanned the darkness and shot down black tunnels in every compass direction, reaching for every neighbourhood in the city. Moisture jewels gleamed and dripped from ancient joints. The pumps thrummed on, perfectly designed, forgotten by everyone in the city above, beasts working without complaint, loyal despite abandonment. Except that one of them had now gone silent. I stifled an urge to get down on my knees and apologise for neglecting them, for betraying these loyal machines that had run for more than a century. I went over to Pump Six's control panel and stroked the dinosaur's vast belly where it loomed over me. The control panel was all covered with dust, but it glowed when I ran my hand over it. Amber signals and lime text, glowing authoritatively, telling me just what was wrong, telling me and telling me, and never complaining that I hadn't been listening. Raw data had stopped piping to the control room at some point, and had instead sat in the dark, waiting for someone to come down and notice it. And the raw data was the answer to all my questions. At the top of the list, model 13-44474-888 requires scheduled maintenance. 
946,080,000 cycles completed. I ran through the pump diagnostics. Valve ring, part number 12-33939, scheduled for replacement. Piston parts, number 232-2, scheduled for replacement. Displacement catch reservoir, part number 37-37-37577, damaged, replace. Emergency release trigger bearing, part number 810-9, damaged, replace. Valve kit, part number 437834-13, damaged, replace. Master drive regulator, part number 39-23-9834959-5, damaged, replace. Priority maintenance. Compression sensors, part number 49-4, part number 7777-302, part number 403-74698, Primary train, part number 010303-0. Gurney belt valve, part number 902. The list went on. I keyed into the maintenance history. The list opened up, running well into McKatie's tenure and even before. Dozens of maintenance triggers and scheduled work requests, all of them blinking down here in the darkness and ignored. Twenty-five years of neglect. Hey, she called. Check this out. They left magazines down here. I glanced over. He had found a pile of trash someone had stuffed under one of the pumps. He was down on his hands and knees, reaching underneath, rooting things out. Magazines, what looked like food wrappers. I started to tell him to quit messing with stuff, but then I let it go. At least he wasn't breaking anything. I rubbed my eyes and went back to the pump diagnostics. For the six years I'd been in charge, there were over a dozen errors displayed but the pressure dines had just kept going, chugging away as bits and pieces of them rattled away, and now suddenly this one had given way completely, coming apart at the seams, loyally chugging until it just couldn't go on anymore, and the maintenance backlog finally took the sucker down. I went over and started looking at the logs for the other nine pumps. Every one of them was riddled with neglect, warning dumps, data logs full of error corrections, alarm triggers. I went back to pump six and looked at its logs again, The men who'd built the machines had built them to last, but enough little tiny knives can still kill a big old dinosaur, and this one was beyond dead. We need to call Pressurdyne, I said. This thing is going to need more help than we can give it. Chi looked up from a found magazine with a bright yellow car on the cover. Do they even exist anymore? They better. I grabbed the manual and looked up their customer support number. It wasn't even in the same format. As our numbers, not a single letter of the alphabet in the whole damn thing. Not only did Pressurdyne not exist, they'd gone bankrupt more than 40 years ago, victims of their own overly well-designed pump products. They'd killed their own market. The only bright spot was that their technology had slouched into the public domain, and the net was up for once so I could download schematics of the Pressurdynes. There was a ton of information, except I didn't know anyone who could understand any of it. I sure couldn't. I leaned back in my desk chair, staring at all that information I couldn't use, like looking at Egyptian hieroglyphics. Something was there, but it sure beat me what I was supposed to do with it. 
I'd shifted the flows for pump 6 over to the rest of the pumps and they were handling the new load, but it made me nervous thinking about all those maintenance warnings. Glowing down there in the dark. Mercury extender seal. Part number 5974-30. Damaged. Replace. Whatever the hell that meant. I downloaded everything about pressure dynes onto my phone bug. Not sure who I'd take it to, but damn sure no one here was going to be able to help. What are you doing with that? I jumped and looked around. Suze had snuck up on me. I shrugged. Dunno. See if I can find someone to help, I guess. That's proprietary. You can't take those schematics out of here. Wipe it. You're crazy. It's public domain. I got up and popped my phone bug back into my ear. She made a swipe at it, but I dodged and headed for the door. She chased after me, a mean mountain of muscle. I could fire you, you know. Not if I quit first. I yanked open the control room door and ducked out. Hey, get back here. I'm your boss. Her voice followed me down the corridor, getting fainter. I'm in charge here, dammit. I can fire you. It's in the manual. I found it. You're not the only one who can read. I found it. I can fire you. I will. Like a little kid having a fit. She was still yelling when the control room doors finally shut her off. Outside, in the sunshine, I ended up wandering in the park, watching the trogs and wondering what I did to piss off God that he struck me with a nut job like Sue's. I thought about calling Maggie to meet me, but I didn't feel like telling her about work. Half the time when I tried to explain stuff to her, she just came up with bad ideas to fix it, or didn't think the things I was talking about were such a big deal. And if I called up halfway through the day, she'd definitely wonder why I left so early, and what was going on, and then, when I didn't take her advice about Sue's, she'd just get annoyed. I kept passing trogs, humping away and smiling. They waved at me to come over and play. I just waved back. One of them must have been a real girl, because she was disintendently obviously pregnant, bouncing away with a couple of her friends, and I was glad again that Maggie wasn't with me. She had enough pregnancy hang-ups without seeing the trogs breeding. I wouldn't have minded throwing Suze to the trogs, though. She was about as dumb as one. Christ, I was surrounded by dummies. I needed a new job, some place that attracted better talent than sewage work did. I wondered how serious Suze had been about trying to fire me, if there really was something in the manuals that we'd all missed about hiring and firing. And then I wondered how serious I was about quitting. I sure hated Suze, but how do you get a better job when you hadn't finished high school, yet alone college? I stopped short. Sudden enlightenment. College. Columbia. They could help. They'd have some sharpie who could understand all the pressure dine information. An engineering department or something. They were even dependent on pump sex. Talk about leverage. I headed uptown on the subway, with a whole pack of snarly, pissed-off commuters, everyone scowling at each other and acting like you were stealing their territory if you sat down next to them. I ended up hanging from a strap and watching two old guys hiss at each other across the car, until we broke down at 86th and we all ended up walking. I kept passing clumps of trogs, lounging around on the sidewalks. A few of the really smart ones were panhandling, but most of them were just humping away. I would have been annoyed at having to shove through the orgy if I wasn't actually feeling jealous. I kept wondering why the hell I was out here, in the sweaty summer smog, taking hits off my inhaler, while Suze and Chi and Zoo were all hanging around in air-con comfort and basically doing nothing. What was wrong with me? 
Why was I the one who always tried to fix things? McKaddy had been like that, always taking stuff on and then just getting worked harder and harder until the cancer aided him from the inside out. He was working so hard at the end, I think he might have been glad to go, just for the rest. Maggie always said they worked me too hard, and as I dragged my ass up Broadway, I started thinking she was right. Then again, if I left things to Chi and Suze, I'd be swimming up the Broadway River in a stew of crap and chemicals, instead of walking up a street. Maggie would have said that was someone else's problem, but she just thought so because when she flushed the toilet, it still worked. At the end of the day, it seemed like some people just got stuck dealing with the shit, and some people figured out how to have a good time. A half hour later, covered with sweat and street grime, and holding a half-empty squirt bottle of rehydrating sweat shine I'd stolen from an unwary trog, I rolled through Columbia's gates and into the main quad, where I immediately ran into problems. I kept following signs for the engineering building, but they kept sending me around in circles. I would have asked for directions, I'm not one of those guys who can't, but it's pretty damn embarrassing when you can't even follow a simple sign, so I held off. And really, who was I going to ask? There were lots of kids out in the quad, all sprawled out and wearing basically nothing, and looking like they were starting a trog colony of their own, but I didn't feel like talking to them. I'm not a prude, but you've got to draw the line somewhere. I ended up wandering around lost, going from one building to the next stumbling through a jumble of big old Roman and Ben Franklin-style buildings, lots of columns and brick and patchy green quads, everything looking like it was about to start raining concrete any second, trying to figure out why I couldn't understand any of the signs. Finally, I sucked it up and asked a couple half-naked kids for directions. The thing that ticks me off about academic types is they always act like they're smarter than you. Rich kid, free-ride prep school ones are the worst. I kept asking the best and brightest for directions, trying to get them to take me to the engineering department or the engineering building or whatever the hell it was, and they all just looked me up and down and gibbered at me like monkeys or else laughed through their effy highs and kept on going. A couple of them gave me a shrug and a dunno, but that was the best I got. I gave up on directions and just kept roaming. I don't know how long I wandered. Eventually I found a big old building off one of the quads, a big square thing with pillars like the Parthenon. A few kids were sprawled out on the steps, soaking up the sun, but it was one of the quietest parts of the campus I'd seen. The first set of doors I tried was chained, and so was the second, but then I found a set where the chain had been left undone, two heavy lengths of it dangling with an old open padlock on the end. The kids on the steps were ignoring me, so I yanked open the doors. Inside, everything was silence and dust. Big old chandeliers hung down from the ceiling sparkling with orangey light that filtered through the dirt on the windows. The light made it feel like it was the end of the day, with the sun starting to set even though it was only a little past noon. A heavy blanket of dust covered everything. Floors and reading tables and chairs and computers all had a thick grey film over them. Hello? No one answered. My voice echoed and died, like the building had just swallowed up the sound. I started wandering picking doorways at random. Reading rooms, study carols, more dead computers. But most of all, books. Aisles and aisles with racks full of them, room after room stuffed with books, all of them covered with thick layers of dust. A library. A whole damn library in the middle of a university and not a single person in it. There were tracks on the floor, and the litter of effie packets, condom wrappers and liquor bottles where people had come and gone at some point 
but even the trash had its own layer of dust. In some rooms, all the books had been yanked off the shelves like a tornado had ripped through. In one, someone had made a bonfire out of them. They lay in a huge heap, completely torched, a pile of ash and pages and backings, a jumble of black ash fossils that crumbled to nothing when I crouched down and touched them. I stood quickly, wiping my hands on my pants. It was like fingering someone's bones. I kept wandering, running my fingers along shelves and watching the dust cascade like miniature falls of concrete rain. I pulled down a book at random. More dust poured off and puffed up my face. I coughed. My chest seized, and I took a hit off my inhaler. In the darkness I could barely make out the title. Post-Liberation America. A Modern Perspective. When I opened it, its spine cracked. What are you doing here? I jumped back and dropped the book. Dust puffed around me. An old lady, hunched and witchy, was standing at the end of the aisle. She limped forward. Her voice was sharp as she repeated herself. What are you doing here? I got lost. I'm trying to find the engineering department. She was an ugly old dame. Liver spots and lines all over her face. Her skin hung off her bones in loose flaps. She looked a thousand years old, and not in a smart, wise way, just an erect, moth-eaten way. She had something flat and silvery in her hand. A pistol. I took another step back. She raised the gun. Not that way. Out the way you came. She motioned with the pistol. Off you go. I hesitated. She smiled slightly, showing stumps of missing teeth. I won't shoot if you don't give me a reason. She waved the gun again. Go on. You aren't supposed to be in here. She herded me back through the library to the main doors with a brisk authority. She pulled them open and waved her pistol at me. Go on. Get. Wait. Please. Can't you at least tell me where the engineering department is? Closed down. Years ago. Now get out. There's got to be one. Not anymore. Go on. Get. She brandished the pistol again. Get. I held on to the door. But you must know someone who can help me. I was talking fast, trying to get all my words out before she used the gun. I work on the city's sewage pumps. They're breaking, and I don't know how to fix them. I need someone who has engineering experience. She was shaking her head and starting to wave the gun. I tried again. Please, you've got to help. No one will talk to me, and you're going to be swimming in crap if I don't find help. Pump 6 serves the university, and I don't know how to fix it. She paused. She cocked her head first one way, and then the other. Go on. I briefly outlined the problems with the pressure dines. When I finished, she shook her head and turned away. You've wasted your time. We haven't had an engineering department in over twenty years. She went over to a reading table and took a couple swipes at its dust. Pulled out a chair and did the same with it. She sat, placing her pistol on the table, and motioned me to join her. Warily, I brushed off my own seat. She laughed at the way my eyes kept going to her pistol. She picked it up and tucked it in a pocket of her moth-eaten sweater. Don't worry. I won't shoot you now. I just keep it around in case the kids get belligerent. They don't very often anymore, but you never know. Her voice trailed off as she looked out at the quad. 
how can you not have an engineering department? Her eyes swung back to me. Same reason I closed the library, she laughed. We can't have the students running around in here, can we? She considered me for a moment, thoughtful. I'm surprised you got in. I must be getting old, forgetting to lock up like that. You always lock it? Aren't you librarians? I'm not a librarian, she interrupted. We haven't had a librarian since Herman Sue died. She laughed. I'm just an old faculty wife. My husband taught organic chemistry before he died. But you're the one who put the chains on the doors. There wasn't anyone else to do it. I just saw the students partying in here and realized something had to be done before they burned the damn place down. She drummed her fingers on the table, raising little dust puffs with her bony digits as she considered me. Finally, she said, If I give you the library keys, could you learn the things you need to know about those pumps? Learn how they work? Fix them, maybe? I doubt it. That's why I came here. I pulled out my earbug. I've got the schematics right here. I just need someone to go over them for me. There's no one here who can help you. She smiled tightly. My degree was in social psychology, not engineering. And really, there's no one else. Unless you count them. She waved at the students beyond the windows, humping in the quad. Do you think that any of them could read your schematics? Through the smudged glass doors I could see the kids on the library steps, stripped down completely. They were humping away, grinning and having a good time. One of the girls saw me through the glass and waved at me to join her. When I shook my head, she shrugged and went back to her humping. The old lady studied me like a vulture. See what I mean? The girl got into her rhythm. She grinned at me watching and then motioned again for me to come out and play. All she needed were some big yellow eyes, and she would have made a perfect trog. I closed my eyes and opened them again. Nothing changed. The girl was still there with all her little play friends, all of them romping around and having a good time. The best and the brightest, the old lady murmured. In the middle of the quad, more of the students were stripping down, none of them caring that they were doing it in the middle of broad daylight, none of them worried about who was watching, or what anyone might think. A couple hundred kids and not a single one of them had a book, or a notepad, or pens, or paper, or a computer with them. The old lady laughed. Don't look so surprised. You can't say someone of your caliber never noticed. She paused, waiting, and then peered at me incredulous. The trogs? The concrete rain? The reproductive disorders? You've never wondered about any of it? She shook her head. You're stupider than I guessed. But... I cleared my throat. How could it? I mean... I trailed off. Chemistry was my husband's field. She squinted at the kids humping on the steps and tangled out in the grass and shook her head and shrugged. There are plenty of books on the topic. For a while there were even magazine stories about it. Why breast might not be best. Stuff like that. She waved a hand impatiently. Rohit and I never really thought about any of it until his students started seeming stupider every year. She cackled briefly. And then he tested them. And he was right. We can't all be turning into trogs. I held up my bottle of sweatshine. How could I buy this bottle, or my earbug, or bacon, or anything? Someone has to be making these things. You found bacon? Where? She leaned forward, interested. My wife did. 
Last packet. She settled back with a sigh. It doesn't matter. I couldn't chew it anyway. She studied my sweat shine bottle. Who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe it's not so bad. But this is the longest conversation that I've had since Rohit died. Most people just don't seem to be able to pay attention to things like they used to. She eyed me. Maybe your sweatshine bottle just means there's a factory somewhere that's as good as your sewage pumps used to be. And as long as nothing too complex goes wrong, we all get to keep drinking it. It's not that bad. Maybe not. She shrugged. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I'll kick off pretty soon. After that, it's your problem. It was night by the time I came out of the university. I had a bag full of books, and no one to know that I'd taken them. The old lady hadn't cared if I checked them out or not. Just waved at me to take as many as I liked, and then gave me the keys and told me to lock up when I left. All of the books were thick with equations and diagrams. I'd picked through them one after another, reading each for a while before giving up and starting on another. They were all pretty much gibberish. It was like trying to read before you knew your ABCs. Mercady had been right. I should have stayed in school. I probably wouldn't have done any worse than the Columbia kids. Out on the street, half the buildings were dark. Some kind of brownout that ran all the way down Broadway. One side of the street had electricity, cheerful and bright. The other side had candles glimmering in all the apartment windows, ghost lights flickering in a pretty ambience. A crash of concrete rain echoed from a couple blocks away. I couldn't help shivering. Everything had turned creepy. Felt like the old lady was leaning over my shoulder and pointing out broken things everywhere. Empty auto vendors, cars that hadn't moved in years, cracks in the sidewalk, piss in the gutters. Was this what normal was supposed to look like? I forced myself to look at good things. People were still out and about, walking to their dance clubs, going out to eat, wandering uptown or downtown to see their parents. Kids were on skateboards rolling past and trogs were humping in the alleys. A couple of vendor boxes were full of cellophane bagels, along with a big row of sweatshine boxes all glowing green under their lights, still all stocked up and ready for sale. Lots of things were still working. Wiki was still a great club, even if Max needed a little help remembering to restock. And Miku and Gabe had their new baby, even if it took them three years to get it. I couldn't let myself wonder if that baby was going to turn out like the college kids in the quad. Not everything was broken. As if to prove it, the subway ran all the way to my stop for a change. Somewhere on the line they must have had a couple guys like me, people who could still read a schematic and remember how to show up to work and not throw toilet paper around the control rooms. I wondered who they were, and then I wondered if they ever noticed how hard it was to get anything done. When I got home... Maggie was already in bed. I gave her a kiss and she woke up a little. She pushed her hair away from her face. I left out a hot pack burrito for you. The stove still broke. Sorry, I forgot. I'll fix it now. No worry. She turned away from me and pulled the sheets up around her neck. For a minute I thought she'd dozed off, but then she said, Trav? Yeah. I got my period. I sat down beside her and started massaging her back. How are you doing with that? It's okay. Maybe next time. 
She was already dropping back to sleep. You just got to stay optimistic, right? That's right, baby. I kept rubbing her back. That's right. When she was asleep, I went back into the kitchen. I found the hot pack burrito and shook it and tore it open, holding it with the tips of my fingers so I wouldn't burn myself. I took a bite and decided the burritos were still working just fine. I dumped all the books onto the kitchen table and stared at them, trying to decide where to start. Through the open kitchen windows, from the direction of the park, I heard another crash of concrete rain. I looked out towards the candle flickered darkness. Not far away, deep underground, nine pumps were chugging away, their little flashes winking in and out with errors, their maintenance logs scrolling repair requests, and all of them running a little harder now that pump six was down. But they were still running. The people who had built them had done a good job. With luck, they'd keep running for a long time yet. I chose a book at random and started reading. Don't forget, copyright is Paolo Bajigalupi's No Going Out There and Pinch Pinchy. Grant, thank you very much. Links and everything like that will be on the main site, so please pop over there to the starshipsover.com and check it out. Hopefully I'll try and get another one from Paolo as well, so <laughs> fingers crossed, you know. And while I've been doing this show, my train tickets have landed to get me from Paris to Nantes for the Utopias Science Fiction Convention. Is anyone going to that? I will see you there. Apparently I think... Alistair Reynolds is going, so that's quite nice. I might try and drag an interview out of him. And Robin Hobb, all the live is live ship traders books. Read them as well. So there you go. So that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it kind of, you know, did something special for you. Filled in a little gap. Let us know what, how you like the show. You know, drop us emails, please. Starshipsofa at gmail.com. My name's Tony Smith. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to support the Starship Sova, please, please, please. <laughs> it's just, there's a, there's a few options to go. You can go into the shop and get something there, or you can do the monthly subscription, which is £2.50 and gets you into Starship Sanatorium. And you'll actually hear, I did a coffee interview the other day as well. So there you go. There's quite a few shows in there. Or if you just want a kind of a one-off donation, that so much helps as well. So thank you. So look forward as well to my roundtable discussion with that good dark master of the arts, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh, coming at the weekend. And do look out for the Larry Santuru story, which is coming soon next week. Some will like it, some will not. It will be talked about, I can guarantee that. Until then, my good friends, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, of that erasure procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.